You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Amen. Well, uh, when I was in middle school, uh, I was not what you would call uh, an athletic individual. There were things that people called me in middle school. Uh, uh, sweaty uh, was one of them. Um, husky. These are the names that I remember, but, but athletic was not one of them. So you can imagine uh, my disappointment uh, to find out when I rolled up in eighth grade to my PE class that we were having a badminton tournament uh, in the class. I, now, I say that because if you don't know anything about badminton, you should know that uh, poor reflexes and uh, slow eye-hand coordination are not your friend when you're playing the game, Okay. So there I am in the class, and, and the, the coach starts pairing us up. And as if to add insult to injury, um, I get paired up last, classic. And uh, the guy that I get paired up with is a man named Paul. Now, you don't know Paul. And to be fair, uh, I was nothing to write home about, okay? But compared to Paul, I was LeBron James, Okay? <laughs> So we were on a team together, and it was a sight to see. And we start playing this tournament, this bracketed tournament. Game one happens. We go on the court. We've got a little racket. And we win. We, yes, I said wow, too. Yes. Yes, we win. It was exactly one more game than I thought we were going to win. So, I mean, sky's the limit at this point. We moved up the bracket. I learned what a bracket was that day. I didn't even know. So we're on the bracket, we're moving up, game two, we win. Semifinals, on the court, we win. And we have this moment at the end of the semifinals where we kind of look at each other and we have, that, we have that sort of unspoken like, this could happen. <laughs> like we're the worst, but this could happen, right? And so, and so here we go. We are, we are in the finals. We are playing against the two most strapping lads in the class, right? And we got our rackets, and it's go time. And it's on, man. Paul's ducking left. I'm swinging right. Birdies are flying. We're like two chunky Andre Agassiz going at it. It is happening. And by some miracle of providence, we sweep the tournament. We win the whole thing. Thank you. Uh, yeah, no, to this day, it was my crowning athletic achievement, and uh, I'm feeling really good about it. We won the whole thing, and it's, it's kind of dumbfounding, right? It's like, how did that happen? What, what came together to make us win? It wasn't like we were bringing some great thing to the table, but somehow, it, that very thing seemed to loosen us. Like, we were not great. The other teams knew that, Right? And so they let their guard down, right? And we knew that, so we knew we had nothing to lose, right? Everything to gain. So we just played our little sweaty hearts out, and, and we pulled it off. And the thing that we thought would make us fail was the very thing that helped us win. Do you see that? Now, why am I telling you that this morning? Well, this morning, we are... Uh, immersing ourselves in a passage that has everything to do with prayer and specifically the kinds of prayer that God responds to. And I don't know when I say that word what comes to your mind. When I say prayer, how that makes you feel immediately, what it makes you think. Um, 
But I do know, man, prayer can be a hard thing for us, difficult, touchy thing for us. Maybe for you, when I say prayer, you just immediately feel worn out, man, right? Because you know that you've been praying for something for a really long time, that you've been pleading with, with God to change this thing or this person or this circumstance, and it's just, it hasn't happened. And so for you, there's, there's an exhaustion. It's like, what else do I got to do to cause you to answer me, right? So when you think about praying, you just, you're beat. You're worn out. Maybe that's not you. Right? Maybe, maybe for you it's deeper than that. Maybe when, when I say prayer this morning, for you the feelings that come up are a lot of guilt and a lot of shame and a lot of wanting to hide. Because for you, when you think about prayer, all you can think about is what a mess you've made of yourself this week, this month, this life. And, and the thought of coming before a God who calls himself holy, and righteous, that is such an awesome and weighty thing for you. You're just, you can't bear the thought that he would even want to bend down and listen to, to such a person. And so for you, when you think about prayer, it's, I got to clean up, man. I have to wash up. I, I have to do, I at least have to get one good weekend before I can come to this guy, right? So there's shame and there's guilt that crops up in you. So I don't know what, where you land in, in there, but wherever you are, we're all asking basically the same question. And it's, it's this, what, what does it take to get God to respond to me? What, what moves that needle in my prayer life? What can give me the, that competitive edge, so to speak, right? Well, Jesus is answering that question this morning in this passage. And he's about to show us that the advantage we are looking for is found in a really unlikely place. He, he's going to show us that it's actually found in our weakness. That when it comes to prayer, weakness is the way. Weakness is the way. That's our main point this morning. Weakness is the way. And he's going to show us this by giving us three very unexpected role models for prayer. We're going to get to basically peer through three windows and, and see what makes up a person who gets the attention and the affection of God. And I think what we're going to see is going to surprise us. So we've got a lot to cover. Uh, here's how we're going to do it this morning. We're going to do a quick overview of each of these three scenes that Luke gives us. And then we're going to pull back the curtain after that overview and, and we're going to uh, zoom out some, just make some conclusions about what we see and uh, we'll be done there. So that's, that's where we're headed. So turn with me, if you have your Bible, to Luke 18, starting in verse 1. We're, we have a lot of scripture to cover, and we're going to be in the text a lot. So get that out. Luke 18, verse 1, says this. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So Luke is being nice to us here, right? He tells us up front what the parable means, which is really great to a guy like me, because sometimes I come to the Gospels, and I read Jesus' words, and I'm like, Bro, I just, I don't know what you mean by that, right? So Luke tells us up front exactly what he means. Thank you, Luke. This parable was told so that we would always pray and not lose heart, right? That's the point. Verse 2, he said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, 
Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect to cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Okay, there's, there's the first of our three scenes, and it's a parable about prayer, right? And we learn what? That God hears his people, and he's eager to do them good and bring them justice, and, and so that should drive us to our knees in prayer because we know that we serve a God who actually cares for us. That's the point. That's the lay of the land here. But now, there's something else that's being communicated here that I don't want us to, to miss Jesus is saying that, but he's saying more than just that. What's beneath the service? What's going on here? Well, uh, think of it like this for a moment. Think for a moment about um, the casting in this story. Who makes up the cast list in in the parable we just read? Well, it's it's a small cast, right? You have two characters. You have the judge who will be playing the role of God today, right? And not doing so hot at it, apparently. And then you have the widow, so now, who are we in this story? Well, if, if the judge is playing God, then who's playing us? You can say it. The widow, right? The widow. We're the widow in the story. Have you ever, um, have you ever played the, that game uh, where you, uh, you have your friends like pick? Uh, if, if I was in a movie and I was the lead character, who would you get in Hollywood to play me game? Right? It's also called the find out who your real friends are game. Have you played that game? It's, uh, so I, I love movies, and we, I play this with my friends. And um, I don't know. I like to fancy myself as like a, a younger, uh, less troubled Robert Downey Jr. Right? I can get down with that. Some Iron Man in my life. I can roll with that. That's great. Do you know who, who they pick for me every time? My friends, my friends. You know who they pick for me? Every time. Jack Black, y'all. Jack Black! That's not a compliment. It's not, a, it's not an ego boost. Jack Black. This is a Jack Black moment for his disciples. Feel me? This is a Jack Black moment. So you're, oh, hold on, Jesus. You're casting me as who? I'm the, you're the, we're the widow in this story? I'm the widow? See, you got to understand, there's a stigma here that, that's missing in our culture. A widow here, in their day, a widow was powerless powerless. She was without influence in the society. She was socially and financially vulnerable. Commentators tell us that not even the land that she would have gotten from her husband in his death would have been uh, given to her because uh, when he died, that, that land was connected with his family of origin, not his family of marriage. And so that made her incredibly dependent on the kindness and generosity of others. So she has to plead for the judge to give her mercy and justice because she has no other options on the table. He is her only hope for justice. Do you see that? And Jesus is saying, be like that. Be like that one, the widow. Be like that. Now do you start, are you starting to see what's happening here? Like you're starting to feel what that point is like? It's this, apart from being tethered to the God of the universe, we have nothing 
and we bring nothing to the table. That's what he's saying. So if we want to see things like God's justice as his people, we can't muster it up ourselves. We can't generate it ourselves. We're weak. We're powerless until we look to him in prayer. That's the point. Jesus is saying something really profound. He's saying if we want our needs met, we have to see ourselves as needy. Does that make sense? If we want our needs met, you want your needs met, then you have to concede your need. It has to start there or it won't happen. Or to say it another way, weakness is the way. Weakness is the way. Anybody bothered yet? We got, we got, we got more. He's not done. Parable two coming at you. Verse nine. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Again, thank you, Luke. Jesus told this parable to rebuke self-righteous people who look down on others. That's the point. We don't have to guess. That's where it is. Verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So again, we're looking at the case of of someone who is helped by God as they acknowledge their weakness and their need. Are you starting to pick up on the theme yet? Now, who's our cast this time? Who's on the cast list? Well, two characters again, right? You have the Pharisee and the tax collector. Let's deal with the Pharisee for a moment. Now, it is easy to miss. We have 2,000 years removed between us and the telling of this parable in real time, right? It's easy to miss how these moments and how these words strike a person or how they should. When I say, for, for instance, uh, the Pharisee. When I say Pharisee, that word, to a group of Christians in the 21st century, do you, do you immediately have a, a positive sensation or a negative sensation when I say that word? Negative, right? Is it negative? He's the bad guy. He's the villain. We all know this because we've read the Gospels, right? You own a Bible, you know this. Jesus rails on the Pharisees. He spends a whole chapter in Matthew 23 digging into these guys. These are not the guys you want to be like. But you got to remember, if you are coming with a first century viewpoint, if you're a Jew in the first century and you're hearing this for the first time, he's not talking about the villain. He's talking about your pastor. He's talking about your lead pastor. He's talking about the person that you look up to the most in your spiritual life. Imagine that person, the, 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 the people in your life that, that you most aspire to be like. The Pharisee would have been the model citizen for the Jew. He would have been the person that, that you would want to emulate your life after. That's how they would have heard this. You would be pulling for the Pharisee when you heard this story. Okay? So feel that. Then we have the tax collector. Now what, now, what is that? Well, in Palestine, tax collectors were Jewish citizens who um, uh, were employed by the insurgent Roman government that was sort of taking over Judea, and they were taking money, these tax collectors were, from their own people, and they were giving it to that insurgent Roman government. The, the people that were hated by the Jews, they were taking money from their people and giving it 
to those people that were hated by their people. What's worse was they were notorious for taking more money from their people than they actually needed, and they were lining their pockets in the process. So not only were they helping out the enemy, but they were also getting rich off their own people in the process. So these guys were hated by the Jews. Feel that? Hated. They were seen as traitors and thieves, sellouts, morally bankrupt people. And Jesus says to his disciples, that's the guy God justifies. That guy. What would that have felt like to hear if you're there? I can describe it to you, but what would it have felt like to really know that's probably the most hated guy in my society and Jesus is saying he's the one who wins in the end? I don't, think, I don't know that it's possible to feel it in 2019 the way they did in this context. We, you need, we need somebody with more stigma than that. Let, let me take a, a crack at, at one. Uh, in 1992, uh, a man named Jeffrey Dahmer was sentenced to 15 life sentences for the brutal murder of at least 15 men and teenage boys. In most of those cases, he ate them. He was a cannibal. Now, in prison, somebody comes up to Dahmer and gives him some Christian literature. He takes it back to his cell and he starts reading these gospel tracts telling him about the way to salvation. And he realizes for the first time in that prison cell, I am a monster. I'm wicked. I need a savior. And Jeffrey Dahmer, the cannibal in prison, becomes a Christian. Trust in Christ. Cast his life on Jesus. Now how does that feel to hear? That when you die, if you're in Christ, your neighbor will be a cannibal. God doesn't do that though, right? Like, like he's gracious, but there's a line somewhere. I think cannibalism is probably the line, right? That we don't, God doesn't, he's, he's merciful, but cannibal, like you don't, you don't bend low to cannibals. Do you? you don't give mercy to cannibals. But you see, that's, that's the point, y'all. That's the point of the passage. God does respond to cannibals who cry out to him. And tax collectors, and liars, and wife beaters, and porn addicts, and anyone else who comes to him needy. Anyone who comes to him needy. The problem is, most of us don't see ourselves as being that needy. We're just being honest. Most of us don't see ourselves like that. We tend to be a lot more like the Pharisee, right? Looking to our own good record to justify ourselves, to make us right before this holy God. But Jesus shows us what we need is not to act like we have it all together, but rather to admit we are morally bankrupt when we come to him. It was like uh, eight years ago now. And I was at a gas station with Kelly. We were filling up the car, and we put the card in to fill up, and it wouldn't work. Card wasn't working. Okay. So we get on the app, the Wells Fargo app, and we pull up my account. And in my Wells Fargo account, 
At that moment, it reads that I have negative $2 million. I was like, Kelly, what'd you buy? What'd you do? Right? I was losing my mind. Right? I called him up. We, we worked. There was, there was a glitch in the system. Right? And somehow it debited $2 million from my So they gave me back my $2 million. I hate when they take my $2 million. Right? I was, but here's the point. What happened in me the moment I saw that number on the screen? Despair. Oh, no. Right? Need. These were the, the things that were awakened in my heart in that moment. And that's exactly what God is saying is the posture of someone who he responds to and justifies. Do you see that? That's the posture. And some of you, if you're honest with yourself, you're, you are a mess. You are spiritually bankrupt, but you're acting like a millionaire as if that impresses God. It doesn't impress him. Need does, though. He bends to need, to desperation. He'll, he'll bend to that. He'll say yes. We seeing a theme? God's ear is bent toward the needy widow, and his heart is forgiving toward the sinful tax collector. And as if to drive home his point one more time, Luke gives us one more story. Look with me in verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Again, I want you to feel this here. In ancient Jewish culture, children were not the little Gerber babies that they are to us, right? They're not the little bounce them on his knee, give them a lollipop babies that we think about when we think about little children. That's not how they would have thought about kids. See, one of the highest values in ancient Jewish culture was contribution. What could you contribute to the welfare of your family, to your tribe, to your village? What could you contribute? And until you became a contributor, you were seen more like a nuisance, less like a bundle of joy, right? So that's how, how infant would have read or been interpreted as they were interacting with these children back in the first century. It would have felt much more like that. And it would have been so beneath a teacher of, uh, of Jesus' stature to engage with them. They were non-contributors. All that they had was need. That's all that they had. And yet here he is holding and blessing infants. Get that this is a shocking scene to his disciples. And so one more time, as if a living parable is being acted out, his disciples and us are faced with this question again, right? How do we see ourselves? Do we see ourselves as mostly strong, independent, self-sustaining, self-sufficient, or needy and empty and 
trusting and depending. How do you see yourself? Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Feeling challenged by that? Should. These are our three scenes. These are our three role models that Jesus gives us for prayer. And this leaves us with one massive question to answer. What is a vulnerable widow, a moral degenerate, and a societal nuisance teach us about prayer? That's the question this text is posing toward us. So I want to end with just three observations. Three things that I think this passage means for us, and then we'll be done. One, this means that our self-reliance will kill us. Listen, please listen. Your self-reliance will kill you. This, this text is meant to be an encouragement, but it's also meant to be a warning. You see, at the, at the very center, the bullseye of Christianity is this concession that I lack what I need to be right with God. Right at the middle of this thing, it's a concession and an admittance that I lack what I need to be right with Him. I lack the the power that it takes to change things. So to act like you're strong or able or righteous or put together in and of yourself is not only anti-prayerful, it is anti-Christian. It's anti-Christian. Listen. The Pharisee was a better man than the tax collector. That's not even like debatable. He he, he just was. He he was morally uh, above repute. He he was honorable. He gave. He was religious. He tithed. He he, uh, invested in the work of God. He didn't cheat on his wife. He didn't cheat on his taxes. He fasted. He was self-controlled. He was exhibiting all these things. He was a better man. And he went to hell. That's the point of the story, isn't it? The the tax collector went down to his house justified right before God. The Pharisee went down to his house unjustified. If you're an unjustified person and you die in that state, what happens to you? You perish. You have no life. You're not his. The better man perishes? The better man? How can that be? But that's the point. You having it all figured out before you come to God is working against you. I don't know who I'm talking to in here that's there right now, but if if that's you and and the feeling in you is, I've I've just got to get my act together first, it's working against you. Your efforts to be put together and morally pristine so that God will accept you, listen, please listen, it's working against you. Some of you have been at Stonegate now for a while. And, you, and, and you've heard 
sermon after sermon with this message, this truth before. And yet you're still hopelessly clinging to your own record. Your own sense of goodness as if God's happy about that. As if that's what he's looking for from you. Please, today, you have to decide to lay down your trust in yourself and cast yourself on Jesus. Warts and all. Sin and all. It's your only hope. If you are hoping in yourself this morning, you will perish. If you are hoping in Him, you will not. Our self-reliance will kill us. Number two. Our weakness shows off God's strength. Our weakness shows off God's strength. I said earlier that God's attracted to those who have nothing to contribute. Why is that? Here's why. Because when I contribute nothing but my need to him, then God must contribute everything else. And when God contributes everything else, the only one I can brag on in the final analysis is God. That's how this thing works. This is Christianity. Romans 8.3, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Translation, you were so weak in yourself, you couldn't obey God's law. So God did it for you. That's the gospel. That's what this thing is about. Jesus lived the life that you could never do. You and I fail every time. And he in the strength of his might, lived the life we couldn't. Then he crawled up on a wooden cross and bled out and died the death we should have died for the, for the lawbreakers that we are. He absorbed that for us, called it finished, raised from the grave, God vindicating his sacrifice on our behalf. That's Christianity. The strong one in the gospel is not you. It's him. The strong one is him, and he has accomplished the salvation of everyone who comes to him weak. Every one of us who comes weak. Therefore, if those two things are true, that our self-reliance will kill us and, and that our weakness shows off God's strength, if that's true, then this follows, that when things feel the most hopeless, that's when there's the most hope. That's when there's the most hope. If what we've just seen in Luke is true, our optimism in our prayer life should be exploding. If you're self-aware enough to own the fact that you're a mess and can't do it on your own, your optimism in your prayer life should be exploding. Because you'll know, I can't, but I serve the one who can. I'm unable to, 
But my God is absolutely able to. I am weak, but he's the very definition of strong for me in Christ. Where does that leave us? It leaves us in a really wonderful place. Are you crippled by your sin? I know there's folks in here who came in this morning and you are a mess and you actually know it. Praise God for that. If you're a mess this morning and you're just wondering, why do I keep running back to the same thing? Why do I keep drinking from the same broken fountain? Just stumble after stumble. You, you feel like lightning might have struck you as you walked in this morning. If that's you, that sin has you by the throat this morning, you know what you need to do? Pray. Pray to God, the God who loves to turn brokenness into triumph. That's what he does. Pray to him. Cry out to him. He is eager to change your life, to set you free. There's so much more hope than you think. There's so much more. You've been beat down, but there's hope for you this morning. Pray to him. Are you, are you like me where you're looking around at culture right now and you're like, what has happened, man? There's is so much brokenness everywhere. Like, are you, are you aching for the day when Roe v. Wade will be overturned and 3,000 babies a day won't legally be murdered in our country? You aching for that inside you? Or are you grieved by things like racial injustice? Does it break your heart even a little bit that MLK is still right 60 years later that the most segregated hour in a, in a week in America is 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning? That there's still brokenness and divisiveness even within the church of God? Does that break your heart? It should. I know it breaks so many of our hearts here at Stonegate. It makes us weep. It's not okay. To, do those things grieve you? This cultural climate we're in? Pray! Cry out to the God who just told us that he loves giving justice to his elect. Why wouldn't we ask him for things? I'm not saying we don't do things. I'm just saying in our doing, he does so much more when we pray. That's what this thing is about. This is why we cry out to him. Do you want God to save your family? Do you want God to save your neighbors that you've been talking to, your coworkers? You look out over the landscape of humanity and realize that there are literally billions of people who have never even heard the word Jesus. They're perishing in their sins. You want to see them saved? Pray. Pray to the one who can raise up workers in the harvest to send them out. Pray to him. He wants you to come to him. Does it feel insurmountable? Yes. That should drive you down to your knees to plead with him. And he loves to answer the prayers of needy people. He just, he loves it. I don't know if you've heard of uh, a guy named George Mueller uh, before. George Mueller was a Christian in Bristol, England, in the middle part of the 18th century, I mean the 1800s. And he made it his, his life's work to show the world that God alone could be trusted to meet every one of his people's needs. So, so, by conviction, George never asked a soul for anything in all of his ministry. He, he took all of his needs and requests 
to God in prayer, all of his financial concerns only to God in prayer, all of his concerns to start this orphanage that he wanted to or the seminary that he wanted to. He brought it all to God only in prayer because he wanted to be a testimony that God hears and God does. And God did. If you ever get a chance, read his autobiography. It's, it's paradigm shifting. And in that book, he tells a story about one day that the, that the orphanage was created now and there were, there were orphans in the system. One morning, what took place? So it's morning time and 300 children roll into the dining hall for breakfast before school, except they didn't know what George Mueller knew, which is that they were out of food. Like there just wasn't any more food. And so you have a room of 300 kids needing to eat, school's around the corner, and he has nothing to give them. And so George, in his need, he has the kids sit down, and he prays for the meal. And he thanks God for the food, even though it's not there. And then he just stops, and he waits. And listen, it's not like he's sitting on this brilliant plan, right? It's not like he's like, you guys just watch. It's about to go down. I got something on my sleeves. He had nothing. All, all he knew is if God doesn't do something right now, this is going to get really awkward, right? That's all he knew. God, I'm going to thank you. And he stops and he waits. And then there's a knock at the door. And they answer the door and it's the town baker. And he says, Mr. Mueller, I've been up all night. I could not sleep. And somehow I knew that you would need bread this morning. And so I baked three batches of bread, and let me bring it in for you, if that's okay. As he's talking, another knock at the door. Second knock, this is the milkman. He comes to the door, and he says, Mr. Mueller, my cart broke down out front of your orphanage, and all of my milk is going to spoil by the time I fix this wheel. Would you mind if I dropped off these crates of milk to you? Do you have any need for that today? And in about 30 seconds, they went from having nothing to 300 children having breakfast for the morning before class. That's what God does, people. That's how he works. And, and it's not, George Mueller is not magical, right? He was not an extraordinary man. He was a needy man with an extraordinary God. You see that? That's the difference. He came with need and God came to supply. That's what he does. So many of us are struggling in here, struggling with finances, struggling with sin, struggling with relationships. He wants to meet those needs, but let's own that they're needs and then come to him and watch him supply all that we need. He loves taking care of his kids and he loves when we come in prayer needy. Only come empty when you come. Like the, like the hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's how we come. Let's come to him now in prayer. Lord, there are those of us in this room whose hands are full of stuff and self-reliance and accomplishments 
and achievements and I don't need anything-ness. Would you pry open our hands from those things and help us see that actually we have nothing if we don't have you? God, there, there are people in this room who do not see themselves like infants or tax collectors or cannibals or widows. God, would you, would you be merciful in this moment to help us all have the distinct sense that without you, we are all those things. God, would you supply, would you, would you hear the, these prayers? We, we're weak, but you're strong. We're unable, you're able. I'll just give you a moment as you're praying right there. I'm sure there's some of us in the room who you're hearing this and you're going, I, I haven't even cast myself on him in the first place. I've been so desperate to make myself okay that I won't even come to him in prayer until I got my act together. What you need to do is cry out to him in this moment. Ask him for grace. Ask him to supply the righteousness that you finally are willing to own that you don't have. If that's you, would you just ask him for that in this moment? In the name of Jesus, ask him for that. Lord, you are able. We love you. And we thank you for being the strong one in this thing. And we can't wait to boast in you as we sing these next songs and boast in you and you alone for eternity. You're the only one who's worthy. And we celebrate you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.